Hi everyone, this is Luke with Blue Through Radio. I have a highly esteemed guest with me today, the incredible Dr. Julia Pascal. Um, Julia founded the Pascal Theatre Company, who are putting on the Dancing Talking Taboo event at this year's Bloomsbury Festival. The event is on Saturday the 16th of October at St Pancras Church. Hi Julia, um, to get us started, do you mind just quickly introducing yourself and telling the listeners of some of the many things you're working on at the moment? <laughs> Hi Luke. Some of the many things, yes, I'm a, a multitasker by nature, so that's a good question. Well, obviously I'm totally focused on this at the moment, which is a extraordinarily interesting collaboration with London Contemporary Dance School students, their second year students. And it's a new venture for me. So the actual core of it is the recordings, which are online and the scripts of these women who've been interviewed during lockdown. And these are women who have been living on the margins and many from exiles and refugee countries and extraordinary experiences, um, what I call half the world is missing. So narratives of social and political importance that you never normally hear. And those texts, have been used as an inspiration for choreography by the students. So the students are talking and dancing and uh, exploring the church in a site-specific performance that moves. So the audience moves around them and uh, it's about 20 minutes, 25 minutes, we think. So we'll be running it and then taking a short break and then running it two or three times more. And um, it's very exciting. Yeah, I love it. Brilliant. Yeah, it does sound very exciting to me. It's, it's going to be a very together experience, particularly with them moving around. I wasn't aware of that. They're going to be moving around the audience as well. Yes, it's an enormous church once you go inside it. I mean, I walked in and I thought, how am I going to make this work? It's massive and it has no focal point. I'm used to working in a theatre, which is often a black box with lights and, and you have a very focused area. This is enormous it's it's diverse it's it's got very strange light which obviously is natural light coming in and out and uh, it's not destined for performance it's destined for the performance of the vicar obviously and and the congregation it has a very different architectural aesthetic so then i realized actually if i focus on small landing stages where the audience walks around then i'm creating tiny theatrical spaces and that then becomes a whole new experience. And each space has its own light and sound dynamics. And I'll have to make sure as a director, I'm aware of how the cast can really fill this small space and also engage the audience and then move on. So it's, it's constantly moving, which is a, a challenge as a director, but also a good way of, of expanding how that storytelling can happen. And at the same time, each place has a different style. So we have music hall, we have poetry, we have uh, straight storytelling, we have dance, we have vaudeville, we have comedy, we have jokes, and we have very serious areas. So it's, it's constantly changing and uh, nobody's gonna be bored. It's uh, engaging and, and exciting and shocking and, disturbing and amusing all at once <laughs> no, it, it sounds like a very emotional performance in in many different ways where the like what the emotion is going to be will, will vary from performance to performance but you will be able to drag something out of each of us i imagine each, yes. each stop around the room um before we get too deep into the event uh, let's talk about you just a little bit what was it that 
kind of got you started? What's your origin story as such in kind of acting, writing, educating, all the different things you do? Okay. Uh, well, when I was a child, I wanted to be a dancer, which in a way hooks into this. And uh, ballet was my great love. Uh, but then it shifted and I became very interested in text and drama. And I went to drama school and became an actor for four years. And then I realized, I think I'm not really a natural actor. I think I'm a director because I began to feel that I was outside analyzing in the rehearsal room and thinking, how would I do this? And this could be extraordinary if, it, if only you didn't scream and shout at the actors. The directors in those days were very bullying. But I didn't know how to be a director because there were very few women directors. And then I went to university as a mature student of 24, went to London University and read English, and then went back into acting at the National Theatre and was part of a company and directed a platform performance called Men Seldom Make Passes, which was something adapted from the stories and poetry of Dorothy Parker. That was with Sarah Kesselman and David Schofield. And it ran for two years, it was extremely successful. And it had that kind of vaudeville element that I'm using here too. And then I went to the Orange Tree as an associate director and then I formed my own company working on new writing of other playwrights but I was always poor, so I was doing a lot of journalism for most of my life. And uh, actually, I, I, I lived quite well on it at a certain point. And I was a dance journalist and an arts journalist. And I wrote about culture and Jewish history and uh, decided that perhaps I should start writing plays because I really know how to write a play from the ground up because I've been an actor. I know, I know what the problems are. I know what a rehearsal room is. I know how staging works. So I then began writing. Uh, this is about 1990, my first important play, which was Teresa, which was about the collaboration by the British authorities on the Channel Islands with the Nazis during the occupation. And that was a hidden history, a hidden woman's history. And it was a history I knew nothing about because this narrative of British collaboration with the Nazis is not one that is told even today. And I guess that was the beginning of the journey of of looking at the stories that are not told, particularly women's stories of history. And then I wrote more plays, uh, there's a whole catalog of them, and found that I had to be a producer as well because I had to raise money. So that's that's been a part of my life, not one I particularly relish, but has to be done to make things happen. And uh, the work's been seen in, in other countries as well. So I've done a lot of traveling. And then later on in my life, I decided I wanted to do a PhD. So I did a doctorate at uh, University of York. And that was about the absence of Jewish women characters on the English stage from 1945 to today. And I, it got me to looking at British history. Why is there hardly any mention of Jewish life in it? And today that's very important when we think of Black Lives Matters. It's Jewish Lives Matters too. and and. All, all these histories which are not told became a passion and still are a passion of mine and, and women's histories too. I'm, I'm interested in who tells the national story and what is it? And there is no one national story, there are many national stories. And I suppose I'm a little bit of what I do is try and find those other national stories and, and international stories, which of course is what they are because the immigrants who come here bring world history with them. And that's what I'm interested in showing in, in any tiny way I can. So. It was a website, it is a website, and now it's developing into a piece of performance theatre, dance theatre, and a whole new generation of, of, of young people are discovering 
these stories as well and, and making them their own. Uh, it's disturbing for them because they're coming across stories of racism and, and obviously the, the piece is a critique of that racism, but in order to, to reveal it, you have to show what the racism is. So there are some texts which are, of course, racist, shut your mouth Jew and dirty gypsy are, are spoken by racists, but remembered by the women who are telling the story. And so the students at first were very hesitant. Oh, people will think I'm a racist. I could see what's on their faces. And I had to explain to them, no, <laughs> this is an anti-racist piece, but we have to show what people experience in order to critique it. So it was quite a learning experience for them as well. So it, it's a huge journey. Yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but. <laughs> <laughs> I think you summed it up. I, I think it's very, um... It's very interesting and inspiring the way that you've managed to cover almost the entire landscape of theatrical arts, at least, and like including the the journalism side of things as well. Which I mean, my job at <laughs> current, um, and it means that you you truly got the full experience, and now you've chosen to use it for um, to tell those stories that might not have been told before that really should be getting more shined. You see that with quite a lot of the different events at, at the festival as well. There's always different events celebrating um, Jewish history. This year is is big for the um, the Bangladeshi community as well, kind of bringing to light their things. So it's it's great that particularly we're getting told um, these women's stories who have been hidden away in history and even nowadays. Um, so yeah, I, I really like that you're doing this work. Um, and then another piece that I came across when investigating the theatre com company was your work with children as well. Um, mm. you, there's these classes that are run by the company, kind of workshops for writing and drama to kind of help people towards a sim maybe a similar career to yourself where you might write or produce or anything like that, get a taste of it all um, when, when you're younger. And sure. it's been interesting recently, the dialogues about how, how the, the arts should or maybe should not be part of a traditional education um have you got a particular take on this yes i think the arts i, I think studying the arts teaches you everything for example i was terrible at maths and geometry uh, but now i realize had they been taught through another art form through an art form it would have helped me so for example to know that in ballet you, you would lift your leg to 45 degrees or 90 degrees uh, I would have understood why are we measuring degrees or uh, if you were doing a tap, if you were learning tap, for example, and you were, you were counting and you were doing a beat and you were learning rhythm, you'd understand why sums matter. Or if you had to fill in a form to get money for a project, an arts project, you'd have to know how to budget. These kind of areas are, are, are I suppose, the sciences. And had I learned them through the arts, I would have learned them with great pleasure or physics, for example, I now regret that I wasn't better at physics, but I couldn't understand how it applied to my life. It was too abstract. So now when I'm lighting a show and I'm working with a lighting designer, I understand I, I will say to him or her, look, I want, I want this tone or I want half the face lit. And I understand this is the physics of light, but I can't express what it is exactly I want because I don't have the physics, but I understand I'm missing that physics. So had I been taught it in that way, I think you can teach almost any of what they think is hard through through what they think is soft, but it's not at all, through the arts. And uh, it would be much more exciting to, to show the application of, of science through the arts and the complete melding of the two and that you need the totality that we, we're wrong to split them off. 
and to divide people into artists and scientists, they are totally connected. And that's how I think education should happen. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I was I was lucky enough growing up. I'm I'm now a chemistry student. I'm more in the scientific realm of things, but yeah. my my secondary school was a performing arts school. So we mm. we had the opportunity to go into the music. You can do drama, creative writing, anything that you wanted to, you can go and kind of experience. And that was quite nice for me getting that broader education. So when having these discussions, I have been able to connect to kind of the the two sides, like you say, that have been for now temporarily split um, mm -hmm. to what's considered almost soft and hard, like you say, when mm -hmm. really they should probably be brought together and help teaching for all, all sides of things. Um, so, um, yeah, yes, I'm very... So. Yeah, the whole person, it's, it's, I mean, you were talking about journalism. I think a lot about structure. I know as a writer, I'm very good at character, but not very good at structure. So I now think a lot about structure. And I, when I watch whatever, whether it's trash or, or really well made, I'm looking at the structure of it and I'm finding words like architecture. And I think of the architecture of a project and the architecture of writing and the architecture of directing. And I realize, oh, I never studied architecture at school, but when I look at a building, I realize, oh, it's like a play, but it could be a square house or it could be a piece of Bauhaus or it could be a bridge. It could be anything, but architecture I suppose is a science, um, but why didn't I learn it? And now I'm only just coming to understand the importance of it. So it's the totality, as you say, that, that this is very important. Yeah, I agree. I think, yeah, you can particularly find the arts in anything you look at really. And yes. the, the, the arts embodies so much of what we do as, as a culture, as a society, and science then dictates what is possible within that. Like the, the creative mind is infinite, I suppose, to an extent, and then science narrows that down and the creativity almost expands when that box is made smaller sometimes so it's yes. interesting the ways they interact and they probably should be told to to interact a little bit more than they are at the moment so yes um, that would be nice to see we need it we're the people to do it yes exactly and it was interesting particularly in the past year with covid um seeing people like um, sit with their own creativity when they're at home during isolations and things like that. And for some people it put quite a strain on them, but also allowed people the, the freedom to explore their own creativity and hobbies and things like that. Yes. But um, obviously being a theater, theater company, the COVID must've been quite a strain um, upon your, your own work and everything. The th yes. theater as a whole was, was struck quite hard by, by COVID. Um, so yes. can you kind of tell us about what, what you and the rest of the company were able to do last year to kind of adapt and move around these struggles? Well, we had planned to do a huge site-specific project, which was heritage-funded, called Discovering and Documenting England's Lost Jews. And we were going to do it at the Novo Cemetery, which is at Queen Mary, and COVID struck. So the whole thing had to stop. Mm. So we sat down as a company, uh, we Zoomed each other and said, what do we do now? And we were planning a website. We thought, well, we'll have to make a much richer website than we were doing. So in fact, luckily we had done an enormous amount of research and we had a lot of film from workshops that we'd done. So we found a way of making a website that was indicative of what we'd been doing and was very theatrical. And we employed actors to voice a lot of material and we, made, and we asked them to, to film themselves at home. So we made, I suppose, a piece of theater on the website and it worked. 
uh, it was incredibly stressful, but we did it. And so it taught us an enormous amount about transferring everything immediately to, to a website. And to some extent, we've carried on doing that because so we now have those skills. And I think that's why the Giving Voice project is so rich is because we now have this knowledge of how to make theatrical, how to use, I mean, it meant we could pay actors. So luckily the, you, we were able to contribute something to, to fellow artists. Uh, and applying for grants that would then enable us to contact people on the margins and involve them in classes and artistic projects. It, it was a problem because not everybody was computer literate or able to get Wi-Fi or able to use the digital components. So we then began to train people as well. But of course, you can't touch everybody because there are still a lot of people who are not keen to, to use digital platforms. But uh, we widened and we made an enormous number of contacts within many more community groups. And we now have more, bizarrely enough, COVID me meant that we have now more networks than we had before. So now we just need to make the next transition, which is what this is about as well, this project of going out there um, and starting to interact with the public again. And we'll see how, how deeply we can do that depending on the health restrictions. But uh, COVID was both a terrible thing uh, and also a huge learning area of, of, of what we could do digitally. It stretched us to a maximum and we're still learning. So, so yeah, adapt or die, that's it, isn't it? Yeah. I, I suppose so, yes. yes. So it seems like you've done very well from what you said. Um, yes. Kind of a, a challenge can, as you say, if, if, if it works, you, you can come out better on the other side of it. If you, if you don't, then as yes. you say, it's kind of adapt or die and it, it doesn't go so well. But, yeah, from what you said, particularly with the, the Giving Voice project, which this, this event is based around. Yes. Um, where for, for those that haven't come across it yet, um, the stories of women across the world, immigrants, migrants, um, anyone that needs a story told. Um, there is a space on the, um, the Pascal Theatre Company website where these stories are collected and then voiced over by these actors, as we were just discussing, um, and told um in a, a safe space completely anonymous if need be and um i had a chance to listen to quite a few of them and some of them are really touching they're so interesting to hear these different perspectives from all these different cultures and things like that so um i just wanted to talk through a few of the ones that i, I did listen to and some of the quotes that i took away um the first one being um from the gentle warrior story by some of the initials ch and the, the story ended with an artist is a leader too, isn't she? And that that quote hit me very, very hard. Um, I kind of sat there for a while and thought about it afterwards. And kind of you're you're an artist yourself. Um, mm. I, well, I think everyone's an artist to an extent, but I think you're the, the maybe one of the strongest examples of an artist that I've come across, and have helped and inspired so many more people to come artists through the company and through all the different things that you've managed to do. So, could you talk about how empowering the art can be particularly for those the, the women around the world that may not get a voice otherwise i think it's the art of telling your story and, and realizing it's important and realizing that each individual carries not just her or his story but the story of parents and grandparents and that that is a huge archive that we carry on our backs without really being aware of it and and if, for example, you speak to your grandmother or grandfather and ask them about their childhood, you can go back probably 100 years and they may remember stories from their grandparents. And 
we who transmit these stories are, are the artists and it's a choice to do it, to write it down or to tell someone or to paint, depending whatever it is you want to do. But I feel a kind of duty to, to reveal these stories because what a, I'm not a religious person, but so what are we on this earth for? But to, to transmit the, the beauty and the poetry of our lives, however painful or, or alienating or disturbing, they are the history and we, we are the storytellers. And I think the storytellers are the kings and the queens of our society. And, we should revere them and, and encourage the next generations to become them. And, and it's the smells and the tastes and the music and the atmosphere and all those intangible areas that make a tapestry of our lives that's, that is real treasure. And that to me is wealth. It's not money. It's not gold. It's, it's these and, and they're precious. And, and I suppose I feel a kind of moral duty to record them and help others record theirs in, in whatever way I can. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had a, um, I was having a discussion with another one of the artists at the festival, um, Elizabeth Gunawan, and she, she was discussing about how all of our experiences um, become these stories, and these stories are what we live through, um, and we we had quite a deep discussion about it, and it's it's interesting that it's now come up in this conversation as well, mm -hmm. and um, we were discussing our own stories, whereas in this case we are building. A platform for the stories of others i think that is something that does need to be focused on a bit more i think we do get lost in our own stories sometimes but mm -hmm. um sharing those of that some that can't um is is a very good project as you say you might not be spiritual or religious at all but mm -hmm. yeah i think that's a very good purpose to go about your life with yes um, the enabling um, of, of, of other people and, and and realizing their surprise that their lives were important through the process of listening to them and then just picking out key moments and say and, and just perhaps it's to do with a journalist here which you'll know about someone will say something on passant and you'll think hey that's interesting and you ask them to go there uh, I'm thinking of Claire Manley's story she, she does give her name so I'm giving it uh, she's a, a woman with learning difficulties and she talked about uh, struggles she was having with the council and, and, and other areas and then suddenly she just said something about judo and I said what judo <laughs> tell me about that and so I got her off the stories which everyone has has problems with it, with their daily lives and but this concept of judo of being a warrior as you, to go back to your earlier point that this woman who has been told all her life that she's nothing because she has learning difficulties suddenly comes out as a warrior on the mat and, and beats this policeman uh, was a wonderful story but it's about I think the enabling of the other person by just having your ear really wide open to something they may not think is important. And you realize if you bring that to the fore of their conversation, the forefront, you'll get something that even will surprise them. And, and, and the enabling of the other to, to find within herself or himself something that's so deeply hidden that it's not known about is, is, is very pleasing. And, and then you feel you've got the nugget out of the out of the soil yes yeah absolutely like a lot of these stories of course are highlighting a lot of the struggles um yes. that these women women have gone through but um one of the the really good things about these stories is it really does highlight the the triumphs as well the the, the good things that are going on as you say um this this woman becoming a warrior on the judo mat um despite yes. other things going on that might be making it feel otherwise and um i found the same in another one of the stories um by a lady named uh josephine 
Mm. And she was talking about her struggles with her education and the unforgiving nature of university in a, a foreign country mm. um, to those less fortunate, those with like Wi-Fi issues, as you discussed before as well. Mm. Um, but she she eventually made her way to um, kind of achieve one of her main life dreams, which is starting these nutritional cooking classes for, for women and um, lots of different cultures and things. So it was really nice seeing that highlighted, particularly nowadays where we have such a culture of social media and the news highlighting all these terrible things across the world. Um, and we see it every day we wake up and we, we scroll through the news and we see an, another school shooting or something like that going along. And we can get very lost in the suffering that is going on, but having these stories that highlight actually, yeah, there's, there's these bad things going on, but also there are really nice things going on too. There are these triumphs. People are succeeding despite all that. And um, I think that was, that, that was interesting in terms of some of the women wanted to be anonymous because they were either ashamed of their stories or they didn't think they were very important. But then during the process, they would say to us, no, I'm going to put my name there. I'm going to own my own story. And that was, the process itself was, was really interesting to us because we didn't expect that to happen. Sally and I were, were working together and, and Sally would say, I need to tell you, we, we don't, she doesn't need a pseudonym. She's going to put her name. And we were both <laughs> overjoyed. So I, I think, yes, they, they are triumphs. Uh, then the women understand that it is a triumph because we as outsiders who they don't know, they've never met us uh, except on Zoom or on telephone, acknowledge that they are triumphs and then they're published online. So once you're published online, the world recognizes you, it changes. So there's yet another triumph on top of the first triumph. So there's a kind of double, triple layer going on here, which is very satisfying. Yeah, yeah high highlighting that positivity that can come out of these stories is mm. is really nice. I think it's it's so. I think it's one of the major successes of the project that I found, at least. Is yeah, all this positivity and empowerment that's coming through it. That is telling yes. telling those stories to almost free them of the the bad things within them, and then really celebrate the the things that did work, the successes. Yes. So how as you just mentioned that you kind of met on Zoom. Uh, mm. You had these phone calls with these women. Is is that the the main way that you've been able to collect the stories? We had problems at first because we were trying to reach the hard to reach, which of course we couldn't reach because they were hard to reach. So Sally and I said, uh, "This is Sally Midget, who I've been working with on on this project and many others." Sally said, "We have to go to remote, remotely because it was real lockdown. We have to go to these community centres where these women go." and they are zooming into them or they have found a way of communicating. So we would contact the director of the community center and have access to five or six women. We would explain what we were doing and they then understood that we were safe and uh, they agreed to tell their stories. Uh, quite a lot was on the phone after that because in a way it was liberating not to see each other. They felt freer on the phone. And we were surprised at how much telephoning we were doing. It felt quite old fashioned to go back to calling landlines and, and finding people and spending half an hour and then coming back to them several times and then getting readers to read them. So the process was quite long but it, and old fashioned, but it was great because I'm sure they revealed more than they would have done, certainly in a group or even on Zoom. So that, that's how we found them in the end because uh, 
And I'm sure there's there are many we haven't found because exactly this situation. And there were some community centres who were who were in touch with women who were refugees who wouldn't be interviewed because there were agents in this country who could track them down and attack their families in their home country. Yeah. So there was a t terrible sorrow inside me thinking, uh, there's this woman from X country. Uh, I would love to talk to her, but she's too frightened to talk to me. And I certainly am not going to put her family in peril by insisting on anything. So th there were gains, but I'm aware that there's a lot out there that we would love to have. And, and still there are women terror living in terror, even in safety in Britain. Yeah, absolutely. Like if if there is anyone out there listening at the moment who um, feels like they, they might want their story told, what would be the best way of coming into contact with you to maybe get their story told? If they email sally at pascal-theatre.com, Sally will, will be in touch with them. Okay, perfect. Hopefully you might get a couple extra there. Um, that would be great. <laughs> of course um everyone should definitely get their chance to tell their story and um yes if if this interview does anything for people hopefully that kind of backs away from from the fear of fear of telling it maybe and realize how much of a triumph it would be if you can get that off your shoulders that's right um, so move on a bit more into the event itself now um mm -hmm. so yeah all these stories have been collected and they're being used in the event in in multiple kinds of ways was there kind of a selection process from, from the stories you told, or did you kind of hand them all over to the, the contemporary dance school and say, take a pick? No, I selected because some of them are very poetic and reflective, and I thought this is never going to work with dance. Right. It's, it, it's, it's too uh, personal. So I looked for what was quite active and what could be used very theatrically. And so I guess it's the journalist's editing head <laughs> and the theatre maker's editing head, which looks for very active areas that are poignant and, and have nuance. Um, and in the end, I think there's probably about five or six stories, but as well as that, there are fragments from the other stories that come in, which are very poetic. Uh, like my mother married the wrong man. I married the wrong man. Uh, there's some wonderful poetic. Uh, my name is Ruth. The importance of, uh, comes through many times, although Ruth's story is not told. Um, the name Ruth is pity, means pity. Uh, and then someone else says, no, my name is Irena. And it's the story of a Polish Jewish child who pretends to be a Catholic Pole in order to survive the war. So the importance of even your name and what that reveals about your past and might put you in danger. So we have that as a kind of like motif running through. Who am I about identity? So there are, there are uh, almost uh, songs spoken, songspiel, uh, singing moments that, that come through and repeat and return as rather haunting identity motifs. And then there are whole stories, but edited. So they're very, very tight. And then the dancing will take over. And then there's comic areas too, about the woman who has a knee replacement and uh, starts almost Marx Brothers jokes and um, vaudeville that goes into a popular working class music hall techniques, which I think the dancers had no idea about because they're not exposed to that kind of back culture. Uh, so they learned a lot about that as, as well as other types of, of, of genre of revealing stories. 
there's, there's one point that's in the chapel and we use the chapel and we use nursery rhymes in the chapel and we tell a story of gendarmes coming banging on the door in, in Paris in 1940 to, to take a family away. And, and it's from the baby's point of view. The baby has to stuff her fists in her mouth to shut up because the mother shows her to do this. So you have a, a baby's point of view of, of horror, but at the same time, you've got children's nursery rhymes in French being sung. Uh, so you have many layers of discordant um, aesthetic going on. It's, it's very Brechtian in, it, in its style, which again, the dancers didn't know why, why is this happening? And I have to explain process and, and what was the philosophy and aesthetic behind it. Uh, but we're using the chapel, which is a bit like a little bit of France because it looks quite, there's a, there's a figurine of, of Mary, uh, although it's Anglican, you, you can imagine that it's Catholic. So it's a very, um, interesting to, to use the different parts of the church to, to explore these different aesthetics yeah. right yeah it must have been an interesting creative challenge sitting down and being like okay we have these stories that are currently just kind of words on a page or kind of recorded voice messages maybe from from the phone or, or over zoom and saying okay now we need to convert this into some some form of performative art um just to that's right in. Yeah. yeah, you're right. And it, first of all, I edited quite a lot of text that I thought would work. And then I went in and did a lot of rehearsal with the dancers, mm. asking them to experiment and just to take into their bodies the text. What was hard for them was using their voices. And although the project's called Giving Voice and was, was aimed at women telling their stories, it became something else in the process working with the dancers, which was how do dancers learn to speak on stage? Because they're not trained. I went through a drama school training where we learned to use our voices uh, and to integrate our voices into our bodies and how the, the, that was seamless. Whereas these young people had never learned to use their voices. So their voices, were, I said, I heard myself say many times, your voice is in your back pocket. I want it in your gut. And uh, I don't know if that meant anything to them, but gradually they began to own their voices and, and connect their voices to their bodies. So that for them was a huge learning process, but it's, it's years of training to, to learn to use your voice and, that means express your identity and dare to stand up in society. It has many psychological implications, which is, is hard to assimilate when you're very young. And, and, and I think it's the beginning of a process which they're still enjoying and learning to use. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting how this all kind of links together as well. The project itself is, is about giving that voice. Mm. You found that you gave voice to these dancers as well, who initially didn't want to be very loud and kind of kept it very quiet. But telling these stories loudly is going to be such an important piece of both both the performance obviously as well but in life as well I think telling stories loud you can't just whisper it at the back of like a pub or a church like you say that's um, right it has to be it has to be shouted across the thing so exactly yes um yeah it's, it's a lovely piece of education I think for a lot of people particularly in the arts mm -hmm. um, yes uh, talk, talking of young people in the arts um the listener base for this radio station is largely young students, young creatives, um, people generally interested in culture. Is there any advice that you can give them um, who might want to break into the arts, anything like that, trying to get into the professional world of art? Yes, I, I think find people whose work you enjoy and speaks to you. Um, I often get letters from people who've obviously never seen the work, not even looked at the websites, and I don't... I don't meet them. I think if you've been too lazy to even see who we are, what we do, why would I spend my time? You, you've sent a blanket email to a lot of 25 or 100 people. That doesn't impress me. I think take the trouble to investigate who you want to work with 
don't just think that you want to work with anybody at any time. Yes, there's value in, in doing that, but it's important for you to find your natural home and the person who's going to nourish you and, and to whom you're going to bring something. So it's a two-way conversation. I think people can learn from you, even though you're very young and you think you might not know anything. You actually know quite a lot. I think it's a two-way journey. And so I think do your homework, find mentors, find people you admire, find people uh, who you would like to be or who you would like to emulate and uh, get in touch with them. And most, most artists will take time to be with you and, and to share knowledge with you. I, I think that we like to transfer knowledge. It's, I mean, I didn't really have many mentors or people have been important to me in my life, but no one really did that for me. So I make sure I do encourage people and, and help them and point them to people who will aid them and uh, nourish them in a way I wasn't nourished. And I think amongst my peers, I'm seeing the same thing, that, that we're very keen to help other people because it's just part of our own growth and, and we want to see the next generation and we want to work with them and, and we want to help them. So investigate is what I would say. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, take, take this interview as proof. I've, I've taken a lot from this interview already and I know I'll, I'll be thinking about it for a while, particularly as I go away and edit this. Um, but yeah, have, have these discussions. Go, go talk to people. You'll gain experience. Mm. That, that's the main piece of advice there, I believe. Yes. Um, so right, right before we end, um, I'll let you do a quick plug. What's, what's next for you <laughs> and the, the theatre company after, after this performance? Any projects that you particularly like to plug? Uh, I've written a, a play that I'm discussing with the Imperial War Museum which is about another secret history. Uh, in May 1940, there was an arrest of foreigners called undesirables in Paris. And amongst them was Hannah Arendt, uh, the great political writer and philosopher, and Charlotte Salomon, who was a wonderful artist and a, a distant relative of mine. And 8,000 women were incarcerated in Southwest France in a camp which was constructed for Spanish Civil War Republican fighters by the French. So this is before the Nazis came. So I've written a play about that called As Happy as God in France, which is an ironic title. And uh, I'm plugging that because I'm looking for funding and I'm hoping to do it at the Imperial War Museum and, and, and do it in other places when theatre resumes properly. So that's what I'm working on. And we want to extend this Giving Voice project to the whole of Britain. So that's Sally and I working on finding funding for that. So that's more stories and more projects and connections to more groups and enabling more people. That's what we're doing. Yeah, that would be absolutely wonderful to see. Obviously, if, if anyone's listening that can fund either of those projects, <laughs> make, make contact as soon as you can. Uh, it would be lovely to see both of those as, as soon as we possibly can. Um, so, yeah, I think we'll end it there. Thank you so much for, for talking to me. It's been so, so lovely having this chat. Um, for anyone that's interested at home in coming to the event, there will be more information and the link to book tickets on the Bloomsbury Festival website, which is bloomsburyfestival.org.uk. The tickets are free, but you will need to book for venue capacity reasons. Just got to make sure we can fit you all in. Um, on the 16th, there's going to be four performances, I believe. Yes. Um, one every half an hour from 3 p.m. The, the 3 p.m. slot is completely sold out already. So if, if you want to go, go get the tickets as soon as you possibly can. Um, and hopefully both of us will see you there. Um, and uh, yep, just a reminder, it's on the 16th. It's at St. Pancras Church. Um, and a massive thank you to you, Dr. Pascal, for, for joining me again. And thank a thank you. you to everyone that was listening. 
Uh, this has been Luke with Bloomsbury Radio. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.